Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's teaching podcast. We are in Prescott, Arizona. My name is Nate Huss and I'm one of the team members here. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you could tune in. And yeah, if you'd like to connect with us or learn more, jump over to restorationaz.org. And uh, before we get going, I just want to encourage you, will you take a moment and just pause really quick? Every week um, at the end of the teaching, we always participate in communion. And so I would love for you to go grab uh, a small glass of grape juice, or if you don't have grape juice, just a glass of juice. If you don't have that, if you just have water, that's okay. Um, It's all about remembrance. And so grab that, uh, a small little piece of bread or a cracker, something that you have, and join us as we participate in communion at the end. And so we feel like there's There's no greater application at the end of listening to God's word than allowing the spirit to unify us through communion and remembering what Jesus has done for us. So take a moment, pause, go grab that. Now that you're back, will you please take a moment just to grab your Bible and we are going to dive in together. Mark chapter 10, we will be in verses 13 through 16 today. On a Monday mornings, for the past probably six weeks, but off and on for a couple of years now, uh, I've had the privilege to take my, my two daughters, who are both seven right now, to uh, a mentorship program for learning how to care for horses and, and ride horses and learn about everything having to do with horses. And they love it, especially my, my oldest daughter, Aaliyah. And so every week, they'll, they'll brush the horses. And what we found is that they're both quite allergic to horses. And so they're... Uh, their coach, Ron, not Ron who teaches here. I don't know if he knows anything about horses. He says no. He doesn't know anything about horses. Their other coach named Ron said, hey, next time bring a bandana and we'll put that over your, your mouth and nose while you brush the horses and, and hopefully that will help. And so in typical Landon fashion, I am running late and scrambling through life. And so last minute we're looking for bandanas for them and we don't have any. And so gratefully, my mother lives across the street. So we call my mom and say, hey, do you have any bandanas? She's like, yeah, let me look. We swing by on the way to to take them to their their horse mentorship program and grab two bandanas, throw them in the car, and we're heading out to, to Williamson Valley for this. And the bandanas that my mom gave them were these really bright tie-dye bandanas with some words on them that we had made about eight years ago. And the girls are just learning to read in the last year or two. And so they're reading and they go, who is Clayton Whitted? Like, that's my, uh, that's my friend Clayton. They're like, oh, well, who is Clayton? And I said, well, Clayton was a family friend. And when Bama and Pop, this is what we call my mom and dad, were out of town, Clayton would come over to Bama and Pop's house when Drew and, and me, your aunt Drew and me, were, were little. And he'd watch us and take us places. And uh, he was just a, a good friend. And then I shared how, how Clayton died in the, the Yarnell fire uh, a few years ago. And they're like, oh, we, we heard about that. And they start asking me questions and talking about it. And it's, it's a little weird that in the last month, I have had a lot of just different interactions and questions about that fire. A friend from Phoenix recently came up and, and did the hike, then saw the movie and was asking me questions. Uh, and then we're driving the same day out to, to Williamson Valley, and I see this place that Clayton used to take me when I was in middle school, and we'd go off-roading and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, I did something really weird. I started like talking to Clayton, almost like I was praying in a way, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm like, hey, I don't know if you can hear me or not, but thank you. 
thank you for who you were, the example of love and sacrifice and being a servant for pouring into a young, dumb, punk kid like me, for taking care of my sister, for who you were. And then I felt really weird because I'm like, I don't even know if he can hear me. I'm just talking to myself. And I started to process it. And it's funny. There's no biblical basis to think that Clayton could hear me. Maybe, maybe not. I have no idea is the point. And here's what I started to wonder. When you pray to Jesus, do you sometimes approach it like I did talking to Clayton? Hey, I don't know if you can hear me or not. Hey, Jesus, I'm not sure if you know what's going on in my world right now. Hey, Jesus, I'm not sure if you can hear this, but there's a, there's a couple things going on, or my grandma's sick, or I'm thinking about shifting careers, or we're thinking about moving, or whatever it might be. Did you ever talk to Jesus that way? Not sure if he's there. Not sure if he's listening. Not sure if he's actually present. I have a tendency to do that at times. One of the things that we see about Jesus in the scriptures is that he cared deeply about proximity and presence and touch. He was really, really intentional with touch because touch is powerful. If you've ever been with someone in the midst of a celebration, if you watch a a team win a championship, they dogpile and hug each other and celebrate. Or if someone is mourning and in loss, there's almost nothing as powerful as a hug or an arm around a shoulder. Jesus recognized the power and touch. He would touch lepers, those with diseases that would actually make him ceremonially unclean so that he couldn't go into the temple. He would do that on purpose when he healed people. If a man was blind and Jesus was going to heal him, he'd often spit and then wipe his hands on their eyes. He would touch. It was weird. He did all kinds of things with touch. We, we read one account of it in Mark chapter 5, which we, we studied maybe 12 to 18 months ago. And I, I want to read it and listen to how many references there are to touch. We read this in Mark chapter 5, verses, uh, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and kept begging, begging him. There's, there's uh, proximity here. My little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her, touch, so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd was following and pressing against him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped At all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, If I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who? touched my robes. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and you say, who touched me? But Jesus was intentional with touch. He knew its power. He knew the impact. (laughs) 
His disciples said, who touched me? Verse 32, so he was looking around to see who had done this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, fell down before him, again proximity, at his feet, and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. By the way, I don't know, this, just, this thought just crossed my mind, but sometimes you might fear approaching Jesus. She approaches him with fear and trembling, and what's the first thing he says? Daughter, son, child. If you're in that place, just remember that. We all get there at some point and we approach, or maybe we don't approach because of fear and trembling, but his response will be daughter or son. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But when Jesus overheard what was said, because he was in proximity, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but asleep. They started laughing at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him, and he entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up after he took her hand and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. What we see in this is that both the people that recognized who Jesus was and the power that he had and were following him and Jesus himself both placed a significant value on proximity and touch. It's, it's interesting, though, in our culture, we value touch and proximity less and less and less and less. The more that this digital world comes upon us, the less we care about touch. And I'm not saying digital's bad. That's just a cultural reality for us. Yet for Jesus, there was some significance in not being on a screen and not sending a letter, but being and touching somebody actually present. We'll see something similar in our passage. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Catch the same thing. Some people were bringing little children to him so he might touch them. It wasn't enough for them to be near Jesus, but there was something about Jesus reaching out and placing his hand on a shoulder or, or, or their head to pour out a blessing upon them. Touch mattered. But his disciples rebuked those people. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, notice that, there, there's uh, definitely multiple scenarios and, and situations when Jesus becomes angry in the scriptures, but one of them, one of these times right here, is when the disciples, the religious leaders, kept others from being touched by him. Again, we see the value. Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, touch, he laid his hands on them, touch, and blessed them. Now, I want to point out something really, really key here because I think it's easy to misread this. Back in uh, verse 14, 15, excuse me, Jesus says, I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It does not say 
hey, if you come to the kingdom of God like a little child, you can get in. It says if you do not come to the kingdom of God, if you do not approach Jesus like a child, you cannot get in. Do you see the difference? It's not children can get in. A child like uh, a state of mind, which we'll explain that in a minute, that can get in too. We'll let them in. We'll give them a pass. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the only way to be a part of my kingdom, of what life will look like when he reigns on earth as king, is to come like a child. And so that begs the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to come like a child to Jesus? And there's lots of different things that um, are thrown out as as possibilities. One of the most common is that uh, children just trust so well and so naturally And I think anybody that says that is absolutely out of their minds. I mean, my kids have thought they were smarter than me since they were like 18 months old. They still do. They don't trust. They trust themselves, just like all of us do. Uh, Another thing that is thrown out is that, well, children are just so innocent. I also think you're absolutely out of your mind if you think that's the case. There's a reason that there are sayings like the terrible twos and three-nagers. Like, sin's not hard. We all get it real good. Now, just for clarity, I love my children deeply. They're all wonderful. I like to think of of parenting and this life we have uh, as beautiful chaos. It's the best way to sum it up. It is both incredibly beautiful beyond anything I could imagine, and it's more chaotic than I could have imagined. I don't think it's innocence nor trust. If you look at the, the scope of human history, No matter the culture, context, geography, rich, poor, demographic, whatever it is, what do all children have in common? They come into this world with nothing. They come into this world with absolute, total dependence. They can't do anything for themselves. Can't wipe their own butt. They can't feed themselves. They can't take care of anything. They can't clean. And you know what else? They have nothing to offer. They don't have some money or some resources to bribe or manipulate or make a payment with. They come with nothing. Now, obviously, incrementally over time, they gain abilities and skills and resources and stuff. But every one of these, it emphasizes little children, comes with nothing to offer. So let's pause. That's what all children have in common. Now, the words of Jesus, who's trustworthy always, no matter the moment, are this. You cannot... Enter the kingdom of God. Be a part of his way of life unless you enter like a child. What do we think that means? Unless you come with nothing to offer. Unless you come with nothing to give him, nothing to manipulate or bribe with, no goods or services that you can say, oh, thanks for inviting me. By the way, I brought this dish. You can't get in. You can't be a part of his community and his life if you do that. Now, in our American culture, we don't like that. We like the idea, or used to, I'm not sure anymore, of working hard, of diving in, of earning. Jesus says, that's not a part of the gate here. If you want to, the only way you can is to come depleted with nothing and say, Jesus, you are God and I am not, and that's all I have. What what does a kid have to offer? His presence. What do they do? They go and they sit on Jesus' lap. They go and they're touched and blessed. Their presence is given to Jesus and he gives everything in return. Do we actually live 
as if we need Jesus, like a child lives in need? I've asked quite a few people that question this week. And I'm in agreement that I don't think the answer to that question is yes. Do you actually need Jesus? Now, put aside for a second, you want to go to heaven and not burn in hell, blah, blah, blah. Cool. We get that out of the way. Now, do you actually need Jesus? You know, I have this this blessing once a week where I actually am forcibly dependent on Jesus because I have to do this thing that we're doing right now once a week. And if I try to do that by my own effort to to study God's word and express and articulate and understand the almighty God of the universe who is Father, Son, and Spirit in one, well, we're all in trouble. Thank you. But I love that I am forced to fully depend on God once a week. Like, I'm forced to do that. I don't have an option. But if I wasn't forced to do that, I wonder if I'd actually need I mean, sure, before or after meals or however you do it, we'd say a prayer. Thanks for the food. If my grandma's sick, say, Jesus, please help grandma. If I'm considering a a career shift or moving or whatever it might be, I'd be sure to say, hey, just so you know, I'm thinking about this. If you could open the right doors and close the others, that'd be good. But would I live in actual need? I'm not talking about when my kids go, dad, I'm starving. No, you're not. You're hungry. (laughs) Do you need Jesus. Because at the end of the day, if you're lonely, there's apps and websites to make connections of whatever kind you want. If you're exhausted or you just need an escape, the amount of brilliant content out there to devour and tell you a story and take you to another world, it's good. There's a lot. If you need a a different type of escape that isn't entertainment-based, There's all kinds of substances and pleasures. And the the really good news is if you move to Oregon, all of it is legal as long as it doesn't have to do with a plastic straw. Then you're in trouble. So (laughs) our world makes a lot of sense right now. Honestly, though, do you need Jesus to be married? No. There are a lot of people that don't know Jesus and are married, have good families. Do you need Jesus to be physically healthy, emotionally healthy? Mentally healthy? Like, really, be honest. And here's the thing. When I say be honest, it's important to remember, as we often say, you're never telling Jesus anything he doesn't already know. When we're honest, we're confessing and inviting him, opening our hearts for him to actually do surgery to transform us from the inside out. So when I say be honest, be honest. It's actually for your sake, not his. He knows. Do we actually live in need of Jesus? Do you actually approach the kingdom of God like a child? every day and every hour and every relationship and your vocation and how you handle your resources and your stuff and your space and your time and your sin, do you need Jesus? Honestly. The most healthy followers of Jesus recognize their need for Jesus the most. The most healthy followers of Jesus recognize Jesus the most. The least healthy followers of Jesus, the least mature, I'm not using the word best, I'm saying mature, healthy, the least healthy followers of Jesus recognize their need for Jesus the least. Where do you fall on that spectrum? 
we had a, uh, an elders meeting. Actually, we didn't have an elders meeting. We were just together this week, sitting at a table, most of us. And I, I asked them this question, and it was actually the most beautiful thing. Because without a doubt on every one of these grown men's faces, the answer was through and through and through and through, yes. <laughs> like they were humble and needy, approaching Jesus like children for their children's sake, for them as their fathers or grandfathers and their businesses and their vocations, whatever it might be, and decisions with money, all kinds of things. Where, where do you fall in that spectrum? What is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16 about? I think two things, touch and need. When you approach Jesus, do you just treat him as if this is just a, some sort of communication transaction, almost like you're sending a bunch of emails and you hear a lot of the whoosh mail sent? Jesus, just so you know, I need this, if you can hear me. Hey, Jesus, I'm not sure if you can hear me or not, but just in case, here's another email. Hey, one more thing I forgot I'd, I'd love for you to think of. Hey, I'm really stressed out about this. Hey, Jesus, I would love that. But it's only one way. You don't actually hear that chime ding thing that says something in the inbox. Our relationship with Jesus is never supposed to be a communication transaction. Prayer with Jesus is never supposed to be a communication transaction. It's about touch and presence with an actually present person who is also God, and his name is Jesus. He's there and he hears. No, we don't see him, but we don't see the wind. That's not an issue. Or the oxygen and air that we breathe, and that's not an issue. But he's there and he hears and he listens and he cares. Touch and need. We as a church have to need Jesus. And I'm not sure we live that way. I'm not sure I live that way, but I know that we need to. Last week, I uh, talked during our financial update that we do every month or so about how my first job and our job as a staff and elders and your first job as followers of Jesus is to be good listeners, to practice active listening. If there can be only one thing that you're good at in life, it should be listening. That'll, that'll lead to all kinds of success and health especially when it comes to listening to Jesus. And I didn't just say that because I thought it might sound good during a financial update. I mean that. And over the past six months to a year, but especially in the past month, I am just convicted that we don't need Jesus enough. And there's no better way to go to Jesus in need than in prayer, to say, you are God and I am not. Not to just ask for stuff like he's our magic genie, but to go, you are the father of love, the almighty, knowing, good, perfect Jesus. And I'm convicted by that. It's just been stirring, and I, I don't know what to do about it, but we're processing it as a, a staff and as elders, kind of throwing everything on the table, going, this has to happen. If, if we're not a people that are dependent and in need of Jesus, then what in the world are we doing? I don't care how good sermons are or songs are or how many people fill a room. It's totally irrelevant if we don't enter the kingdom, approach the kingdom in need of Jesus, not just here, but in the everyday stuff of all of life. And so I'm committed to us shifting that. Now, there's a reality. You can pray on your own and should and with your families and in your homes and places of work and in your own head. That should happen. 
And there's also something significant about the body of Christ gathering. That's why we call this a gathering, not a service, to pray corporately as a family together. Not just for our needs, but for our city and our state and our country, for the, the spirit to be known, for, for God to be shown for who he truly is, for healing, for all kinds of things. And how often do we actually do that? I'm astonished pretty frequently by how stupid I am because I don't pray. And then like something's going on in life and I pray and I'm like, oh, that worked out well. And I'm not saying like, hey God, I want a boat. Can you give me a boat? Not like that, but like real life. I've I've yet to see him not answer. So we're processing that and talking about it in a staff meeting. And then Nate, as he fairly often does, brilliantly pointed out something really painful to me about our last welcome lunch. We're in a welcome lunch, which is what we do for for those of you that that might be new to get to know about our church and why we do what we do and who we are and how we do it. And and in that process, I'm talking about how prayer is really important to us and in two ways. One is, and this is valid, that it's on you to pray. We're not gonna, I can't follow Jesus for you. None of us can. So it's on you to meet people and to gather with them and to pray with them. Now, we can provide instruction and guidance, and we work hard to provide a lot of opportunities for relationships to be started. We're not going to just pair you up in a matchmaker way with a bunch of people, but that's why Social Sunday matters. That's why our practice groups matter. You get to know people. That's why we host a lot of different teams night. We share a meal once a month for those of you that are involved in teams. Uh, A lot of different barbecues and events to get to know people because you can't be the church if you don't know the church. It's simple. So that's true. But then I made this really ignorant statement that is pretty funny. I said, yeah, we just care a lot about uh, prayer. So once a month we do an open house prayer night. And it's like, you know, didn't seem real great that we say we care a lot about prayer. So once a month we do something about it. Like, wow, whose idiot's idea was that? Like, that wasn't bright. And that would be me. It's not okay. I I think there's something we have to shift in that. And and then I'm continuing to pray and think about it and talk to the elders about it. Actually, this week, sitting at a table out there, I'm like, you know what? Forget Sunday. What are we doing? Why am I teaching? This is not even relevant. Let's just pray. And I'm praying about it and thinking about it. And then I get a random text from Kate right here who you never text me, hardly ever. I don't think she's ever sent me a quote. And she sends me this quote from a, a Francis Chan book. If prayer isn't vital for your church, then your church is not vital. Okay, I'm, I'm listening. God, I don't know exactly what to do, but I'm listening because that's the most important job any of us have because that's tied into need and touch and following Jesus like a, like a child who has nothing to offer. And so to end our time today, we're going to do that. Now, in the future, I think we're going to make some changes. I don't know if that means we're going to change how we do Sundays. We might. Anything's on the table. I just know we need to be a people of prayer. So if we're not in a little bit of time, come and tell me. Hold me accountable to that. It might be a shift on Sundays. It might be that we start a third gathering as Restoration Church in the middle of the week. That's just for worship and prayer because it's that important. And one of the questions I'm asking is going, it has to be something I actually want to be at. If we're not creating that, then it doesn't work. So we're going to do that. Know what's going to happen. Pray about it. If you have ideas, talk to us about it. Come participate in it. Hold me accountable to it. But we're going to start today. It's probably going to feel real weird for you in the next few minutes. And I'm totally okay with that and think Jesus is too. But this is what we're going to do. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever you see in life, areas or categories, whether that's in the, the civic world, education world, health world, if someone needs healing, gather together with some people, whether you know them or not. It's okay if it feels weird. And pray.
come to the all-knowing, perfectly loving, always forgiving God named Jesus and bring those things before him. Whatever it is, we're going to spend, I don't know how long, a few minutes, five, ten, whatever it is, we'll, we'll feel it out. But just get together and pray. This isn't a, a gathering um, of people that aren't following Jesus. And, and you might be in that place today. Maybe you're not following Jesus. That's okay. We want you to feel welcome as you figure out who the heck Jesus is. Because right now, you probably don't know whether or not he's worthy of trust. We believe he's fully worthy of trust. And so we're going to do this and invite you to feel comfortable just sitting there or participate. But right now, go ahead and find a couple people and just spend some time in prayer about whatever it is that the Spirit places on your heart. Let's do that now.
feel free to continue to pray as you do so or wrap up. Uh, Feel free also to come to the table in response and worship and to take communion. Uh, Like last week, we have a table on either side of the stage. And when we take communion, we are remembering that Jesus willingly came to give his body and blood for us and that we don't walk through life alone, but with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so during the next few minutes, as you wrap up or continue to pray, feel free to do so on your own timing, but come up as appropriate to take communion as a follower of Christ and to know that uh, the Christ, the Savior, the Jesus lives in you. His touch is near, he cares, and he knows. And let's continue to worship in our response by taking communion. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And again, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. So glad that you were able to join us. And uh, if this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a little while and um, are still doing the online thing, I just want to encourage you, go get plugged in. Um, Restoration may not be the church for you and that's okay, but I want to encourage you, go get plugged in with the local body. Is there a church in your area that you could trust and join and, and be a part of the body of Christ? There's something that is really valuable and important about journeying together with other people who are on the journey of practicing the way of Jesus. And so um, whatever that looks like, if restoration is a a place that you could call home and you're in Prescott, Arizona, or in one of the quad cities in the area, we would love for you to join us. If not, I just really want to encourage you, um, go get plugged into a local body. It's really, really valuable. um, And I truly believe it is important for us on our journey of faith. And so um, again, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to restorationaz.org. And as always, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.